Eli Dorado is an economist and regulatory hacker living in Washington, D.C., and a senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. Before joining CGO, he spent over two years as head of global policy at Boom, a company creating a supersonic airliner. Before that, he was a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and director of its technology policy program. He has a PhD in economics from George Mason University. We talked the great stagnation, transformational technologies, and the future of crypto. Well, thanks so much for making the time. I appreciate the willingness to chat for a little bit here. Sure, of course. To get us kicked off, I just want to hear a little bit about the path that you took to get to where you are, because originally you wanted to be an econ professor, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I've just had this sort of meandering path that, you know, sort of aimless. I think I, I, sometimes I joke that I feel like Forrest Gump, right? Like I just, <laughs> a complete idiot and just ended up doing all these amazing things. Yeah. I mean, I was a undergraduate, like sort of early undergraduate. I was really interested in poli-sci. So I took a bunch of poli-sci classes and, you know, basically did most of my poli-sci major in my first two years in undergrad. And then it was only at that point that I discovered econ. And so I did an econ major also. So it was, that was like my training. And then graduated, I was like, oh, I really want to go on the hill, on Capitol Hill and go work there. So I did, I got a job there as a staffer for a congressman and didn't stay long. I ended up leaving. My, my girlfriend was in law school and wanted to be near her. So went down to Charlottesville, got married eventually. And then when she graduated from law school, like we came up to DC area again. And I was like, I don't think politics is for me. I want to do more of the econ stuff. So I got a job at the Bureau of Economic Analysis. And that was not a very hard job, I got to say. And it gave me plenty of time to, to do things like uh, think about what are the prereqs that I would need to do get a graduate degree in economics. And so so went back and did some, you know, night classes just to make sure I had all the all the math shored up and stuff. And then applied to GMU, which is where all my heroes were, like all the bloggers. You know, this was this would have been, I guess, like 2005. I was I was thinking about applying, right? And so it's early blogosphere. It was like a really interesting time. So you had Tyler Callen, Alex Tabarrok, Arnold Kling. Brian Kaplan pioneering the econ blogosphere in a way, right. and they were all GMU related. So I was like, yeah, I want to do that. And, you know, I was still only a few years out of college. So really, you know, admired my econ professors and stuff a lot. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. That, that, sounds, that sounds like a cool, a cool path. And then it became clear, like, I don't actually want to do conventional econ research in the sense of publishing and trying to publish in top journals, you know, like papers are growing so long now and econ, like it's like 90 pages and so many appendices and tons of math and millions of different robustness checks to your econometrics and stuff. And it just wasn't that exciting for me. And so I really, really, I honestly like struggled with the dissertation just because I was working towards an end that I actually deep down didn't really want. And so, you know, sort of found a relief valve for myself in blogging and writing about technology in an economically literate way. And that led me to folks at Mercatus who were like, hey, you should come work, work here. And so I, I joined the Mercatus Center in 2012 in the, with the technology policy program, you know, did a bunch of IT policy stuff like internet governance, cybersecurity, intellectual property, et cetera. Like I, I really got hired because Jerry Brito was interested in my writing on 
cryptocurrency. I think I was the first economist in the world to write about cryptocurrency, as far as I can tell. And oh, geez. Uh, and so then I did that for a while. Eventually, you know, Jerry left to go start Coin Center, which is a cryptocurrency centric think tank. Yep. And so, you know, I stayed behind at GMU at, at Mercatus and ended up running the tech policy program since he he was leaving. He was the previous director. And so I made a a conscious shift to say, like, we're not going to do so much IT policy, or I'm not going to do so much IT policy now that I'm director of myself. And I'm going to try to do more in the world of atoms rather than the world of bits. So I started, I had already done a little bit on drone policy, like FAA stuff, kind of learned my way, worked my way up the FAA regulatory learning curve, decided like, okay, I've done what I want to do on drones. Let's think about what else I could use the skill set for. And so with one of my, with one of my students, we started working on supersonics. And so took that basically as far as I could, eventually got hired at Boom as the first policy hire, set up the DC presence for Boom and uh, you know, spent a couple of years doing that. And then, you know, left Boom, took some time off, did a little consulting, et cetera. One of my former colleagues, Chris Koopman, who was at, who, former from Mercatus days, was running a, a new a new research center at Utah State. And I was like, hey, sign me up. Ended up signing on and it's been great. and. Basically, what I do for CGO is just think about what are the cool technologies that we need to get moving and how can we remove the barriers, you know, especially the policy barriers, but maybe sometimes other barriers and, and just think through like how we can have an, an awesome future with tons of economic growth. Man. And so that's like, you know, to me, it's like an ideal job. All over the place though. Yeah, no, I think, I think I always tell people like at no point... In my career, have I been doing what I thought I'd be doing five years prior? Right. 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 It's just been uh, a, a lot of surprises and just sort of like follow follow the path where it leads. And and I think a, another tendency is that I would get bored doing the same thing over and over again. So like when I was in grad school, I taught, I taught some undergrad classes at GMU. And the first time teaching intermediate microeconomics was kind of a fun challenge. The second time was like, okay, I've kind of fixed all the things I did wrong the, the, the next time. And then I was like, oh my God, if I had to do this again, it would be so boring, <laughs> right? I think both a weakness and a strength is that as I sort of master an area, I'm ready to move on, right? right? And so that makes me, it makes me not a great specialist, but it makes me a great generalist, I think, in the Definitely. sense of I'm never going to be the world's best at something because I get bored too easily with it. But, but I know how to do a bunch of different things and, and can it can sort of like link those experiences. It's probably a good problem to have, but okay. So let's, let's zoom out for a second. One thing that you've taken the time to distill a lot of your own beliefs and goals. Uh, it's actually just in your Twitter bio, which is my fondest wish is that GDP per capita would reach 200,000 by 2050. How do you explain that to people? Why the focus on GDP per capita? What's the deal with that? So my PhD advisor, Tyler Cowen, wrote this book, The Great Stagnation, right? Yep. And it's all about, we're stagnating in one particular metric, it's called total factor productivity. It's basically how much of output do you get for free from technology and just knowing how to combine resources better right. than you did the year before. You don't have to put in any more hours of labor, no more capital that you had before, but you should be able to have more output than the year before just because we're getting smarter and better at doing stuff. And so that was that that metric was growing at about 2% between, say, 1920 and 1970, sometimes 1973, right? And so 2% a year, we're like every year, we're getting 2% better at everything across the board, right? You know, averaged across the economy. And then it fell by half. If you want to think about it in 
more discrete chunks. It's 1973 to 1995, it was like 1%. And we had this reversal where it went back to 2% for about a decade. And so when I first took a macro class, people were like, oh, we had this stagnation period, but we're out of it. And we're growing at 2% a year again. And then in 2005, it fell off a cliff again. Since 2005, it's like been 0.3% per year. So we were getting 2% better per year for most of the last century. And now we're getting 0.3% better per year. So that's what motivates me is thinking about that has a huge impact on human welfare. I think that the level of output is directly affects human welfare, but and also rate of change of output also really matters. Like growth itself matters, even if the levels are high, because it sort of induces cooperation in society to have things get better every year. So like the reason the Chinese Communist Party can do terrible things and nobody in, in China really cares that much is because their lives are getting better every year, year after year. Right. And so they just sort of say, okay, you know, like we have this like terrible social credit score or, or whatever it is that doesn't, you know, I'm not talking about the people being imprisoned or anything, but, but just for the average person, they, they put up with a lot because their lives are getting better every year. And meanwhile, in the US, people's lives are not getting better every year. And so we turn to populism and crazy political theories and social conflict, and it's not really good. So for me, that's a very strong motivator. You know, so even when I was a kid, I was a pretty nerdy young kid. And when I was nine years old, what I wanted for Christmas, and my mom says actually when I was seven years old, but like I, I remember it distinctly when I was nine, what I wanted for Christmas was a world almanac because it had all these statistics about the world. And so I would look up like GNP per capita, you know, for all these different countries. And I would think about how they had grown over time. And I'm sort of extrapolate forward to like, oh, when I'm an adult, this is going to be the standard of living. And I thought that was pretty cool. And small differences in the rate of growth can make a big, big difference over time. And I have always just wanted to see what happens when you get really high. The 200K thing is kind of a joke in the sense of like people say fight for 15 or like trying to come up with a slogan. So it was my attempt to have a slogan, you know, 200K by 2050, which would translate to something like 4% growth a year, which would mean like, you know, 2.5 or something percent TFP growth per year. If we did that between capital deepening and population growth and stuff like we could maybe get four-ish percent a year GDP growth and that would be enough to to get you to something like 200k per year by 2050, which would be a pretty cool world, I think. Yeah. So where do, where would you say you lie on the spectrum when it comes to tech stagnation? Because there seems to be maybe a little bit of disagreement on, well, first of all, if we're even coming out of it, right? Like you mentioned a guy like Tyler, Tyler Cohen is sort of- Tyler thinks we're coming out of it. He yeah. thinks we're coming out of it. But there also seems to be some disagreement as to whether or not we're even in it in the first place. Because you know, you have a guy like, what's an example? Like Peter Thiel in Zero to One. Like the, the, famous, the famous quote here is, oh, you know, we were promised flying cars and vacations on the moon. But I'd say people on the other end of that spectrum would sort of say, zoom out 100 years and we can see that global incomes increased, what, like 300%, our lifespans have, have doubled. I mean, information, get out of here, it's millions fold cheaper. But you guys seem to be taking more of a micro, I use air quotes here, more of like a micro stance and saying like, okay, we're just looking at this through the 70s, right? I think, like, I think like Tyler and Peter agree on the fact that we did stagnate, right, in the 1970s. Yeah. And, and up to, you know, roughly today, at least. I think everyone would acknowledge like IT has been this amazing success over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. The issue, the issue is that it's the only one, right? So like, imagine if healthcare were improving at the same rate as IT or energy were improving at the same rate as IT or 
transportation, we're improving at the same rate of IT. And Robert Gordon, like he got something right in his book. He said there are five big inventions and we had all five internal combustion and chemistry and internal plumb, you know, essentially uh, sanitation, right? And, and a couple others, I forget what they all were off the top of my head, but he's like, we had all these five things invented in the late 1800s. And then from 1920 to 1970, they, they like all had these transformative impacts on the economy. And like, yes, we have IT, but that's, that's one, right? What are the other four? So I would grant the IT thing is being big, but it's, it's not enough by itself to equal what we had coming out of World War II in terms of the progress that we had. And in terms of, you know, getting out of it, I think where I'm a little different than Tyler and, and, and they're very influenced by Peter Thiel on this is I think that we need to take a definite optimist approach. And so Tyler sees kind of some rumblings of progress, like, and he'll cite some things like the MRNA stuff, and, which I agree with is important. And he'll point to that and, and say, okay, that's a sign that we are getting out of it. And, and for me, I would emphasize more than Tyler, the need to like actually wait and see and to see if things get commercialized because it's only when they get commercialized in the form of products that they can affect productivity, right? So it's like scaled, distributed to everybody that it starts to make a difference. And then the other thing is, I think I have a more fleshed out than Tyler vision of like what the future could be like. And so this is, this is Peter Thiel's definite optimism. So that the definite versus indefinite optimism is, I think, really important for thinking about this. If you have a general sense that things are getting better and without engineering level, mechanical level understanding of like what it would take, then, then I think you might just be in an optimistic mood or something like you're not really thinking it through. And, you know, in zero to one, like Peter talks about the importance of definite optimism of having a vision and trying to instantiate that vision in the world. And that's where I'm coming at it from is right. I see the vision that I want to have and we're still very far from it. And I, I kind of know the steps to get there and I'm trying to make them happen. So that so that's, I think, how I, I differ a little bit from Tyler. I, I think on the point about like the rest of the world doing amazing, like Africa is is, is booming and it's great. Right. But the, the TFP point, right, total factor productivity point is narrowly cabin to the developed world, particularly the United States, you know, we're, we are the frontier. And if we are not pushing that outward, then yes, like Africa will catch up eventually, which is an amazing success story for Africa. But then we're just stagnating further. And I think also you could argue you're limiting the opportunity for developing countries to leapfrog. The invention of 5G is great because it means that, you know, Africa doesn't have to build out as much internet infrastructure because you're able to do things more wirelessly so they can actually save more money, save resources, not having to build out a bunch of infrastructure that's eventually going to be obsolete. So the faster we move in the, you know, what's called the developed world, we're all still developing, right? And in the wealthier world, the faster we move, the more leapfrog opportunities we're giving to the rest of the world. And that's important from energy perspective, especially like on climate and so on. You want the developing or the, the poorer countries to be able to leapfrog directly to whatever the cleanest, most successful energy technology is. The faster we move at, at, at generating new technology, the, the quicker to do that. Right. But that's the key in what you're pushing is that in order to get out of any sort of uh, stagnation that we're experiencing, it's not just big breakthroughs that make the difference, right? It's mass adoption of those. Yep. Is that yeah, you got to have both. Okay. So in your mind, then, what are the key technologies that we should be looking at? Because obviously, there's a lot of stuff. And to your point earlier, like 
everything except IT was sort of the issue. What do you think some people are sort of looking over right now that maybe we should be paying more attention to? Yeah, I've said for a few years, I think if we had health, housing, energy, and transportation, right? If you had those four sectors, like those are all pretty big chunks of GDP. And so if we could turn them into small chunks of GDP by, you know, basically getting them all for free, right? Like if you made housing 1% of GDP because everybody gets a almost free house or you know free mansion, like that would be a huge success. Most politicians think about increasing the size of the economy by increasing GDP. I'm thinking right. about reducing nominal GDP in a, in a given sector by, by increasing productivity, right? But if you, if you take those big sec- segments of GDP and you make them so much better and cheaper, the, the real productivity gains are high. Like that's what you want. So housing, I think a lot of it's a lot of it's a zoning issue or, you know, like, like not non-technological stuff, but, but thinking about like manufacturable high quality housing, right? We're still stick building all these houses and, you know, like there's a company in LA called Cover that's doing really interesting things, like thinking about it, about, you know, how you would manufacture at scale housing. And they have like this panelized building system that I think is really neat. You know, in healthcare, like there's so much in biotech, I'm really interested in the longevity space, anti-aging stuff. Like to me, that's an area where the science is absolutely booming. Like it is progressing so fast and it's so interesting to watch. There's a huge adoption hurdle there with FDA approval and the clinical trials that are going to be needed. Right. Right. So it's, it's a long road, but it, it's just incredible. Like the, the breakthroughs that are happening. And then in transportation, like obviously I worked in uh, supersonics for a while. I'm a really big fan of that. And then there's Hyperloop, there's tunneling, you know, there's, tons of op- opportunities to to basically do things faster, more convenient, autonomously. And that has a huge impact because well, probably the most successful empirical model in economics is the gravity model of trade, right? So if you think about two cities with their own GDPs, the amount of trade between them is proportional to the GDPs of the two cities and inversely proportional to the distance between them or the cost of, of moving people and goods between them. You know, economists have a little bit of physics envy and just like copied the gravity model from Isaac Newton. And uh, it turned out it worked really yeah. well in economics. It's like one of the most successful empirical models for the exponents are different, but but it works. And so, you know, be, having better transportation technology, like going to massively increase economic activity. And that's that's pretty cool. And then and then energy, right? Like everybody focuses on climate and, and the need to decarbonize. But I think it's it's actually it's actually more than that. If in decarbonizing, we can drop the cost of energy you know, by half or more, like, I think that is uh, a, a huge gain, right? So instead of 10 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity, what if we could do like five cents delivered to your home, right? Mm-hmm. So not just generation, but transmission and, and maintenance of all the equipment and all that stuff. Uh, I think that would be incredible. And, you know, you see like what a country like Iceland has done with that. They have cheap energy because they have tons of geothermal and, and hydro resources. And they're the world's leading aluminum exporter. Yeah. Because because of that, right? So it just affects the entire economy. So those are like my four segments. I I mean, it sounds like the sort of unifying factor between your philosophy and any of these four is just the, not necessarily the technology itself, right? Like we were talking about earlier, it's just the means by which you're able to drive scale, right? Like if you have, for example, a solar cell that you know, is going to be X times more efficient. It doesn't really matter if it's not cheap enough that people can't use it, you know? Well, yeah. And I, I, would, I would also say like a lot of my friends who are in the innovation space, like they really think they're really bit bullish on 
like basic research at universities. And I think that right. they're, I think, you know, I'm, I'm relatively bullish on it. I think, it, I think it's a good idea to spend more on basic research. But if you have some idea or breakthrough and it's really hard to commercialize because the regulation stops you from doing it or because, or, you know, some other reason, it makes no difference. No difference to the world, yeah. right? And 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 like to see an example of where you know this is obviously true. It's it's supersonics, right? Because we know it's technically possible to have a supersonic aircraft that takes passengers around. Like we had it with Concorde, mm-hmm. we had it for you know thirty years. And the fact that we don't have one now is because it's it's really hard to like a navigate all the regulations, but b accrue all the capital that you would need to do to like create a new supersonic to like. You have to deal with like engine manufacturers. You have to build the entire supply chain. It's just, it's just a huge, it's a very hard problem from yeah. an execution standpoint. And noise regulations are insane. It's really hard to do, and those problems need to be reckoned with right. as well as the I think the basic research idea of like, well, we need to fund these new, very early stage idea creation that that is very long way away from being commercialized it's the same with intellectual property too like i think patents are really important because it's like it's the instantiation of an idea but it's like the idea is not the scarce factor right the scarce factor is the execution to drive it to scale i mean it's coming along nicely though like big news yesterday with with boom united and all that stuff which is which is great what was that like by the way your time uh, at boom how does policy tie in at a company well like like, the entire history of aviation is like totally entangled with policy, right? Like the initial mm. airline service was because we had planes carrying mail, right? And so contracts with the right. US Postal Service and like the carriers were like, oh, we'll, we'll add some people on board to make it an airline. It's totally, totally entangled with regulation and stuff. I, I worked uh, a lot with my government counterparts, you know, it was at FAA fairly often. You know, they deal with UN stuff, international, you know, the Europeans. Uh, are a nightmare to deal with because they just hate American companies and they want to stop America from succeeding in the world. And certainly at the expense of their national champions like Airbus and Dassault, I felt like I was a big part of <laughs> the solution, right? Like I, I think it was, it was a very, very big piece of the puzzle is is getting the, the policy stuff moving forward. Right, right. Just the other half of the engineering challenge, I guess. Okay, so before uh, we wrap up, because I know you, you're a busy guy, you've got places to be, I'd want to ask you a little bit about your sort of take on crypto and blockchain in general. Just yeah. as someone who's involved in this space so early, what are your thoughts on it now? Because 2021 has been quite yeah. a year so far. Well, my fundamental view for the last five years has been that Bitcoin is on course to eventually implode. And because Ethereum is just on a technical level, iterating much more quickly and and like I think that some people think like we're in the sort of Netscape days. Like there's an analogies to the internet. I mean, this is before your time, but people think about, you know, where are we? You know, if you think about the internet as the last big thing to happen, where are we right. in that tr- sort of trajectory? Let's analogize it. And people say like, oh, we're in the Netscape days. Netscape was an early web browser, right? The, the first commercial web browser. Yeah. And I think no way, like we're in the ARPANET days, like where like people are still working on the, their very basic protocols. And that means that there's a long way still to go, right? And so we have to do a lot of development and a lot of figuring out how this is going to work and and how we're going to stitch all these protocols together and you know what smart, what smart contracts, like usability, all that kind of stuff. And so in Bitcoin, there was this block size, you know, sort of the scalability war that raged from like 2014 to 
you know, I guess in some sense it's still going, or they've purged all the big blockers now, so it's, it's over, I guess. But, but they, you know, they've been trying to uh, figure out how they're going to scale. And, and basically, I just saw that going so badly. And, and eventually, the, the ultra small blockers won that, that war. And so I was just like, yeah, it's not, this isn't going to work. The, the sort of, it's sort of way too ideological and not pragmatic enough. And I saw in the Ethereum community, a much more pragmatic view, a much more openness to hard forks, for instance, like where they're adding new features and, and iterating very quickly, like an interest in doing stuff that improves scalability considerably on layer one. And so I, I basically in 2016, I sold all my Bitcoin and bought Ethereum. And that's my investment strategy in general is try to know the future and then buy and hold, right? So like if I, if I know yeah. how things are gonna end up, like I'm not gonna try to time the market, I don't know when Ethereum will put Bitcoin down finally, but I, I think it will happen at some point. And so my mm-hmm. my strategy was I'm just gonna I'm just gonna buy Ether. I'm not gonna worry about the price, but eventually it will become obvious that that Bitcoin is useless if if something like Ethereum succeeds. So what do you think the argument on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, is? Because you have guys like, I don't know, like Michael Saylor's got like stupid amounts of money in Bitcoin. I'm doing actually one of these chats in probably about a month now with Anthony Pagliano, yeah. who's very much into all the Bitcoin, Bitcoin space as well. What's, what's, yeah, exactly, exactly. What's your understanding of the argument on the other side of the aisle? Um, I... In terms of a real argument, right. they would say that it really matters that that Bitcoin doesn't have a uh, a monetary policy that can change, right? It's twenty one million. It's been twenty one million from the beginning of time. They, some people might say, well, these smart contracts are not really very useful, or the smart contracts int- introduce too much of an attack surface, or they might say that that uh, proof of stake is unproven, or that proof of stake requires you know at least weak subjectivity, whereas by running a proof of work system, you can objectively know what is the Bitcoin chain based on number of blocks in the blockchain, right? And you can validate it yourself in right. principle with pencil paper if you need to. So I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's rational. I think it's a religion at this point, right? They've made so much money. Like it's not even trying to be a medium of exchange anymore. It's this idea of like number go up and that's what they care about. And, and so it's like, well, I've made all this money, you know, I, how much has Pomp made on Bitcoin? Like, like tens of millions of dollars, probably, maybe more. And so rational judgments are affected by incentives, right? Like, like pe- people do not make rational judgments in a vacuum. They make decisions that are heavily affected by their interests. And, you know, if your interest is, is in number go up, you're going to find reasons for that. So, so I don't know. I, it's not a really good answer to your question because I don't think I can steal man their case. I think the argument is not very good. So maybe another thing is like, okay, Bitcoin is governance minimized, right? It's like near the end of history in terms of how much development it needs to do. And therefore we don't need to have governance, which means it's a stable system. It's not going to change. And that there's some value in that. And maybe that's true, but Ethereum is going to be there in five years or so. And when it gets there, that's not an advantage that Bitcoin has anymore. And Ethereum will be much more capable at the same time. I guess time will time tell, will tell right? right? I don't give investment advice on this because I would hate for someone to put in, you know, tons of money at $2,700 a coin or whatever it is that Ether is trading at now and then, you know, lose a bunch of it. But yeah, I do not regret <laughs> selling all my, all my Bitcoins and, and holding Ether this, as long as I have. Awesome. Well, I think that's 
the time we got, I know we actually went a little over. So thank sure. you for, for doing this. But yeah, awesome chatting okay. with you, man. Thank yeah, you you're welcome. Good luck. Thank you. Appreciate yep. it. All Have right, a good one. You. Bye. Bye.